Good morning. Super good to see you all here. If you're able to join us in person, glad to have you. If you're joining us online, we're glad to have you as well. We can't see you, but we're super grateful you're joining us. And our prayer and our hope is that as God speaks to us as a church, that as he speaks to us, even for those who are here present, he would speak to you uh, who are at home and that you would expect that to happen today as we open his word together. Uh, we are going to be in John 6 this morning, as Daniel just mentioned. So if you've got a Bible and want to turn there, go ahead and, and turn there. We're going to pick it up in verse 60. So uh, today is just kind of an interesting day. We're actually returning to the sermon series, The Gospel of John, and we're, re- we're actually returning to the series at a really interesting place. So we left off uh, last May at the end of chapter 6 with just a few verses remaining uh, in chapter 6, and then we t- so we took a break for the summer, and we're picking it back up today um, at a place where Jesus is actually going to draw a line in the sand, so to speak, for the crowd that's following him to kind of test their heart and motives on why they're following him, why they continue to follow him from city to city, village to village. So what has happened so far in the Gospel of John in these first six chapters is that, first of all, the author, John, he's introducing Jesus to us as the Messiah, the one who is promised in the Old Testament, this one who would come and take away the sins of the world, uh, this one who was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning, through whom all things were created. And then he introduces us to three witnesses that bear testimony to this truth that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. The first witness is John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is there, he has a following, and when he sees Jesus, he declares, that's him, that's the one I've been telling you about. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and at that moment, a few of John the Baptist's followers are like, that's him? Like, that's him? Okay, well, we're, we're out then. We're leaving you to follow him. And so a few of the John the Baptist's followers leave and begin to follow Jesus. But not only does John the Baptist come to bear testimony and to point to Jesus as the Messiah, but Jesus is performing these miracles, these signs. He's walking on water. He's healing the lame. He's he's feeding the multitudes miraculously. And so these signs and wonders serve as a second witness or a second testimony to the truth that he, in fact, is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then this third witness is the words from God himself, specifically in the Old Testament, that when we read the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, they bear testimony that this is him. This is the one we've been waiting on. This is the one that we've promised would come. And here he is, Jesus, fulfilling all these prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. So now we've made it to chapter 6, and Jesus' popularity is growing. I mean, like thousands of people are now leaving their villages and their homes and their families and their jobs to come follow Jesus. And really this gets fired up at the beginning of the chapter where Jesus feeds the multitudes. And there's like several thousand people there who like experience this miracle. So as you can imagine, they're like, we want to go where this guy goes, man. Like we just got fed and we didn't have to work for it. And it was good. It was fulfilling. It satisfied us. So let's follow this guy. And so this crowd begins to follow Jesus and word begins to spread and thousands becomes tens of thousands of people following Jesus wherever he's going. And so what's gonna happen now here at the end of chapter six is he is gonna draw a line in the sand. He's gonna draw a line in the sand to test the motives of the people to find out why is it you're actually following me? We're gonna pick this up in verse 60. We're gonna start with kind of an interesting verse here. 
when many of his disciples heard it, and we'll come back to what the it is in a minute, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you, if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So unless you've been in the Gospel of John chapter 6, you have very little understanding of what he's even talking about. So the verse verse we read talks about some kind of hard saying. So what has happened is like thousands of people have gathered. That's Jesus. That's the one. He gave us the bread, the fish. Like he's the one who walked on water. That's him. That's him. Yeah, that's him. And so now he's going to begin to say some hard things to his followers. Now keep in mind, this is really not an unusual thing for a rabbi to do in this culture. I don't know if you've ever had like a professor or a teacher or a coach who said the hard thing to you, but it was the thing that made the difference. It like awoke, it kind of awoke something within you. It helped you see something you didn't see before. And so you appreciated the hard thing once you realized it. Well, that's what rabbis were known for. And so to be a disciple of a rabbi meant you followed him wherever he went. You hung on his every word. You expected him to say hard things, things that even maybe kind of shocked you. But as, as that happened, you would lean into the teaching of the rabbi for him to explain the hard things. So Jesus is just doing what any rabbi would have done. He's saying some hard things. And so I want to take a step back and go, what were the hard things he was saying? What is this hard thing that the disciples are saying? Man, I, I can't even hear that. It's so hard. You back up to verse 53. Here it goes. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, that's a pretty hard saying, isn't it? Now, it wasn't unusual for a rabbi to use a parable or a metaphor to express some hard truth that caused you to go, wait a second, what is he saying? But when that happened, what would tend to happen if you were a, a devoted follower is you would lean in. Okay, now I'm waiting on an explanation or I'm gonna ask questions about what you meant. And so Jesus lays this out. Let me just say something hard. Unless you're willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have eternal life. And so when they hear this, Rather than awaken in their hearts to, like, to, to follow Jesus with more devotion, they begin to push back. And so Jesus even says here in verse 62, this rhetorical question, well, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And that's his way of saying, well, what if I just perform another miracle here for you? Would you at least hang around to listen to the explanation? And what he's doing is he's exposing the reason why they showed up in the first place. They just want to see another miracle. Like, I, we heard about what you did over at Capernaum. We heard about what you did on the, on the Sea of the Galilee. We heard about these things. And, and now we want to see it with our own eyes. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you don't just get my miracles. You get my hard sayings too. You don't just get part of me, right? When you get me, you get all of me. And so he's beginning to kind of draw back the curtains on the heart motives of the crowd that are following him. Now, verse 63 he begins to somewhat explain it. He says, it is the spirit who gives life and the, the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So he's drawn a distinction between like his real flesh 
and the Spirit. And here he's explaining it. it's the Holy Spirit of God who actually gives you life. So no, I'm not telling you to come like eat my flesh. That's no value to you. What you need is something more powerful than that. You need my spirit, my Holy Spirit working in you, giving you real life. But you guys are so lost, you don't, you don't even get what I'm saying here. So he says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, this is a really important part of understanding Christianity. So the gospel is that we believe, and as we believe, it gives way to knowledge and understanding, not the other way around. So it's not this idea that once I have enough information and I get the puzzle kind of figured out, then I will believe, but what we're gonna see is by placing your faith in Christ as the Son of God, it begins to open your, your mind up to understand more deeply the things of God. And so the problem isn't that you can't understand what I just said, the problem is that you don't believe. That's our problem here. You're not following me because you believe that I am the son of God. You're following me because you want to see my next miracle. Problem is you do not believe. And then we read something interesting. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So two groups of people that Jesus is aware of, those right, who would not follow him, who would abandon him, but he also know, knew who it was who would betray him, and specifically, we're going to see this is a reference to Judas. So Jesus drawing a line in the sand was not for his benefit, was it? It wasn't out of his curiosity, I just need to know who's with me. I just need to know who's in. How many true followers do I have? He already knows. If he already knows then, to whose benefit is it that he draws a line in the sand? Ours. Now he's showing the crowd something about themselves, isn't he? In the same way he shows us something about ourselves, right? When he draws a line in the sand, he tests the motives of our heart. It's not for his benefit. He already knows who's going to abandon him. He already knows who's going to betray him. He's not curious. He wants us to know that. He wants us to see the motives of our own hearts here. Now, verse 65 says, and he says this next, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, the Gospel of John is really helpful in understanding the Trinity and understanding the role of the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. So later on in the Gospel of John, we're going to get to some robust teaching about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to say things like, the, he's going to call the Holy Spirit the counselor, the one who comes to bring us counsel. And he's going to say, hey guys, I'm getting ready to go, but hey, listen, don't be upset about that. It's better for me to go because in my going, then the Holy Spirit's going to come. But here now we're getting a teaching about the role of the Father. And so what's interesting about this is in the Gospel of John, there are over 100 references to the role of the Father, the work of the Father. In 22 chapters, the Gospel of John, all but three mention the work of the Father. And in chapter six alone, there are 11 references to the work of the Father. So Jesus isn't out um, performing this public ministry in a way where he's getting all the tension. As people begin to follow him, he's explaining to people, here's the role of the Spirit, here's my role, and here's the role of the Father. And so here he says, quite simply, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So for me, I need to know what's meant by that. What does granted mean? 
How do, what does the Father do to grant me to come to Jesus? So I look at some of the other references in John 6, like verse 37. It says, all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse uh, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So part of God the Father granting us to come to Jesus is he's drawing us to Jesus. You think about that. We don't just come to Jesus out of our own curiosity. We don't just come to Jesus because we're like, yeah, he looks like a good option among many. I think I'll choose him. What Jesus is saying is if you come to me in faith, it's because my father is drawing you, inviting you in. Verse 40 says this, this is again John 6. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 45. Again, the role of the Father. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by whom? God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the Father has this active role in drawing disciples to Jesus. And, and, and really, the, the active role of the Father is to teach, to reveal, to expose truth, and in doing so, it draws people to Christ. Here's why that's so important for us today. You may have noticed before I got up to preach, one of our elders, Daniel, got up and he read these verses. And then he prayed, like, God, teach us something. Like, show us something. So, like, what we understand as, as Christians is two things. One, when we open the Bible and read it, God speaks. But not only that, we need the Father to help us understand. So really, it's a supernatural thing to open the Bible and to hear from God. It's not just like a textbook for my math class. I'm working on my quiz, I gotta find the answer, and I go to the chapter and the section, and I find the answer. Now I've got to move on to the next chapter. No, like this is part of an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. We read the word of God, he speaks to us, and he teaches us, and what Jesus is saying, that's what draws you to me. It's not all the miracles and signs. What will really draw you to me in a real relationship is that you hear from the Father and he draws you to me. And then we get to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now this is very much a line in the sand moment for the followers of Jesus. And what's interesting is that John, who's writing this, was one of Jesus' disciples, and he's calling the group of people who go home disciples. Did you catch that? Which means that there was some level of commitment, some level of forsaking to come follow. And what John is saying, at this moment, though, when Jesus draws the line in the sand, he uses the word many, which we're going to assume thousands, in this moment, turn and go back home. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Boom, just like that. Now keep in mind, when God draws the line in the sand, it's not for his benefit. Whose benefit is it for? It's for ours. It shows us something. It reveals something about our hearts. Too many times, listen, Christians, we think of our relationship with God as a past tense event. I prayed, I was saved, right? And that's my relationship with God, like, for me, it was 
the first week of June, 1992, right after the end of my sophomore year of high school, I was not looking for God, and I'll just leave it there for now. Pursuing, that was not the pursuit of my life, God. And yet, I got suckered into going to church camp with my buddy, and what God was doing, though, behind the scenes was, he was planning on teaching me, revealing himself to me, and drawing me to Jesus. And that's, that's where I met Christ. That's where I was drawn to Christ, and I believed in Christ. Listen, I did not understand, as we say in Parker County, come here from Sikkim, right? I didn't understand what the, I didn't, I didn't know how to spell the word theology. It wasn't this vast knowledge of God that led me into a relationship with Christ. It was the Father saying, here, come in. And I, and I had a relationship with Christ, and it radically transformed who I was. And it's still radically transforming me here today. Here's why I'm saying that. I shouldn't be offended when my Savior draws a line in the sand because it's actually for my benefit. All along our journey as Christ followers, Jesus will stop you and say, let's just stop for a minute. Why are you following me? I need you to think about it. I know the answer, but I need you to know. What is it you value in me? Why are you showing up every Sunday to church? You look good in your church clothes and you sound great, but why are you here? Why, why, why did you pray to me this last week? What were, what were you hoping to get out of that? And so these line in the sand moments are really for our benefit, aren't they? Right, because we're prone to what? We're prone to wonder, we're prone to forget, we're prone to take things for granted. What, what used to excite us about God or move us to tears or, or call us to our knees in prayers now has just become like everyday common knowledge and it no longer moves us. And so it's to our benefit when Jesus says, let's just stop for a minute. Can I just show you some things about your heart? Can I just show you some things about why you're calling yourself a Christian? And so we see that Jesus is not only drawing the line in the sand for the crowd, look at what he does next. So the vast majority of the crowd turns and goes back home, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now that kind of sounds hurtful, doesn't it? (laughs) What? But we see this is gonna be such a powerful moment here where Jesus says, guys, listen, I know that everybody's already left and gone home. I need you to think about why you're here. Question your own motives right now. Are you wanting to go? Do you wanna go home as well? And then look at Peter's response. So Peter is notorious for being the guy who, who sticks his foot in his mouth. And oftentimes we chastise Peter for that. Like he's constantly like speaking before he thinks. You know people like that? And like he's getting rebuked by Jesus. But this is one of those moments where he actually gets it right. Look at what Peter says, verse 68. So Jesus says, do you guys want to go home as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, what is so profound about what Peter just said is the fact that he didn't say, Lord, where are we going to go? Or to what shall we go? But did you catch that? To whom shall we go? Now, why is that helpful? First of all, it, it's, it's helpful, but it's also convicting for me. It's helpful in that understanding my relationship with Christ is about a person, not about all the stuff I get from him, right? So as, as, as he's drawing the line in the sand for the crowd, are you following me because I gave you a bunch of bread and fish? Like it, it made you happy yesterday, but you're already hungry again? Or are you following me because you believe that I'm the son of God? Those are two different things. And so it's helpful in that Peter's like, hey, it's not just about the fact that we left our careers and our homes. We also left our families. Like, it's not that we don't have a place to go. It's bigger than that. To whom shall we go? 
We've staked our life, not on a destination, but on a person, and it's you. And look at what he says next. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Did you catch what he said? We believed, and in believing, what did that lead to? Coming to know something. It's not that we had all the knowledge on the front end, and so we had all of our data points together, and it made sense, so therefore we believed. Peter's saying, no, no, that's not how this thing worked. The Father drew us to follow you, Jesus, and we believed. And in believing, we came to know. In believing, we came to understand the deep mysteries of God. And here's what we've learned about you, Jesus. You're the only one who has eternal life. You are, in fact, the Holy One of God. This is really important for you and I. And again, understanding when God does this in our life, maybe you've gone through a crisis or an event or something has happened that really tested your faith. That's a line in the sand moment. And that's not so God can know if you're really in. That's for you to know. It's to help you understand what your motives are. Like, think about it. Like, why are you here today? I'm glad you're here. I'm, if you're joining us, I'm like, I'm glad you're online joining us right now. You could be doing a lot of other things. But the important question is, why are you here? What is it you're hoping to get from God? Now think about that. For so many of us, this is where it's convicting. If I journal out all the things I pray for, far too often I'm primarily asking for stuff from God. Good stuff. Heal this sickness or this disease, restore this relationship, right? Good stuff, but at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, but what's your primary motive? Because if I don't give you the stuff, are you gonna turn around and go back home? And what Peter is saying is when I take all the good stuff I get from God, all the good stuff in my life, and I place it on the scales of the treasure of my heart, and then I put Jesus on the other side, Jesus, you win every time. You win every time. And think about that. Like last week, I was referring to the guy that we call the rich young ruler. Um, we don't know a lot about him, but we know that he was well-to-do. Um, seemed like a pretty sharp guy. Sharp guy. He was really intelligent. Uh, he, was, he was very moral, highly moral. But at the end of the day, he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to get heaven? And Jesus said, mm, I think you're actually asking the wrong question. It's not heaven that you want. It's me that you want. So Jesus just says, well, here's what you have to do. Go home and sell all your treasures and then come and follow what? Follow me. Trade everything that means something to you for a relationship with me. That's the answer to your question. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not about a place or a destination or stuff you get from God. It's about the person of Jesus. You get him. And that's what Peter's saying. To whom would we even go? Nobody, no thing, no destination in our life rivals what you mean to us, Jesus. You're our rabbi, you're our savior, the Lord, you're the holy one. We're leaning into you. If we're wrong here, we're done. We've put everything in trusting you. So Jesus draws a line in the sand as a gift to the disciples to show them where their hearts are and they step forward. Now here's where I want to kind of land with us today. If you're here today and you're a Christian, we, like the disciples, we need those moments, don't we? We need those line in the sand moments as hard as they are 
I mean, I could just see like Peter at first being a little bit offended by that. What do you mean go home, Jesus? We left everything already. But right, we need those moments in our Christian journey to, to weigh the, the, the motives of our heart, to measure um, our, our, our allegiance to Christ. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, maybe that's what today is for you. Just a line in the sand moment where Jesus simply says to you personally, hey, I just want you to think about why you're here. What is it that is driving you, compelling you, motivating you to come to church, to pray, to sing, to call yourself a Christian? And then if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like I'm so excited you're here because here's what you're learning today, that what we have in Christ is worth more than anything else we have in this world. And so for you, even though you don't have all the answers, you haven't figured it all out, this whole Trinity thing, God the Son, God the Father, you guys can't figure it all out yet, it's okay. Believing leads to knowledge and understanding. And so if that's you, like what we want you to know as a church is that a relationship with Christ is exponentially far more valuable than anything you would achieve or attain in this life. And there are a lot of good things to experience in this life, despite all the, the rough things that are going on in our world today, right? Like, occasionally, you know, you're gonna find joy in relationships. You know, even in marriage. Some of you are like, really? It's been so long since I've found joy in my marriage. Like, yeah. Like, every once in a while, my wife is happy that she married me. Every once in a while, right? Every once in a while, like, my kids are like, I'm so thankful you're my dad. This is fun. I like life. Every once in a while, you're gonna find joy in career and success and maybe a new thing and you're, right, a vacation, and those things are gonna make you happy. It's not that those things are bad, but what Jesus is saying, what you have in me is exponentially more valuable than those things. So if you don't have those things, if I'm not feeding the 5,000, if I'm not walking on water, you're still satisfied in me. I'm enough for you. And that's the line in the sand moment for these guys. Jesus saying, I just need to know, am I just me, and is that enough for you? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what we want you to know as a church is absolutely the answer is yes. What you will find in a relationship with Christ far exceeds anything else you could find in this world. And so the question I want to leave you with here today is, really I'll just leave you with two questions as we begin to reflect on God's word and what he's speaking to us is, one, who is the most important person in your life? I want to encourage you to ask yourself that question. Who means the most to you right now? And probably you have a list of people coming to mind, my spouse, my kids, my family, my friends, my church, all good, good relationships. But like, listen, until you make Christ your number one, you will never love those people well. And, and here's why. I'll just put it as simple as I can. Like, I love my wife better when I love Christ more because when I'm in a relationship with Christ, I experience one way, unconditional, no strings attached love. That's what he gives to me. So now I've got something to give away, right? So the, the barter system version of love or, where it's like, I need you to reciprocate what I'm giving to you for this to be love. That's the world's view of love. When I say to you, I love you and I need to hear what back? I love you too. Like that's not real love. Real love is like, I love you whether you love me or not. That's the kind of love that Christ has for us. And when I'm engaged in that relationship, I can give that away to my wife and my kids and my friends. And so it's not that the people in your life, that, like your family and your 
your spouse and your kids aren't supposed to mean something to you. It's that Jesus is saying, I need to mean, mean more than them to you. Because if I'll mean more to you than them, you'll actually be able to love them better. No strings attached, unconditional love. And this applies to everything else in life. So I wanna leave you with that question. Like, I, I don't know what the answer is for you, but who in your life means the most to you? And so as we get ready to reflect on that and to respond, I'm gonna pray and ask that God uh, would speak to you and work in your life and whatever specific way he desires to do that. And our worship team is gonna come forward. Um, if you're here today and you want um, one of our pastors to pray with you over anything going on or you want more information about becoming a Christian, and we're gonna hang out down here at the front over on this side of the room and we'll be here after the service to talk with you and pray with you. As our worship team gets ready to lead us in singing, maybe just take a moment to reflect on what God has spoken to you today. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, God, that you love us enough to confront our heart, heart motives. Jesus, we see your example here in John 6 where you're confronting the motives of the crowd. And so we, as uncomfortable as it is, we say thank you for confronting our heart motives. And God, we de declare together like the disciples, like Peter, we have no one else to go back to. Our faith in you, our relationship with you is so valuable to us that we have forsaken all other things. And if at the end of the day, all we have is you, we have enough. I just pray now, God, that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would work in us where we are prideful or walking in sin and disobedience, I pray right now your Holy Spirit would begin to convict us. Father, where we are walking in, in pain or suffering or brokenness, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in that and would heal us. Father, I pray for any person here who maybe is struggling with, with loneliness and, and not feeling accepted, that your Holy Spirit would speak words of security and acceptance today. So Father, we're asking that as we stand to sing that you would continue the good work you've begun in us this morning. And we pray it all in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.